morning's lesson is from 1 John, which in the church Bibles can be found very close to the back uh, of the book on page 1225. 1 John, starting at the beginning through to verse, chapter 2, verse 2. The incarnation of the word of life. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Light and darkness, sin and forgiveness. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we proclaim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we proclaim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we delve into part of it this morning, we pray that you will speak to us, that you will, we will learn more about what you have in store for us. Amen. So uh, this week I've been thinking. <laughs> yeah, careful there. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> After Easter... Then what? And it's a question we could easily ask ourselves, isn't it? Through Lent, we look forward and prepare ourselves for the pinnacle of the Christian faith, the day where we celebrate victory, victory over sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. But then what? Where do we go from here? Is the rest of the year just one big anticlimax? Now, in a sense, I guess it is. Everyday life pales into insignificance 
when compared to the resurrection of Jesus. Yet that's where we live, isn't it? In the everyday of life. Except for a few high moments here and there, most days are mundane and routine and anything but extraordinary. And that's a problem. Because if we're not careful, faith can easily amount to little more than going through the motions. Where the transforming power of the resurrection is dumbed down to a historical event rather than the catalyst of new life. Now, we're not the first to experience post-Easter doldrums, of course. Let's look at the disciples. At the beginning of John 21, the end of his gospel, Peter announces to the rest of the disciples, I'm off fishing. This is after the, the resurrection. After the resurrection, And uh, some take this to mean that he's going back to his ordinary way of life. Of course, we know that, we've read to the end of the story, that his encounter with the resurrected Jesus that afternoon means that anything but his ordinary life will be his destination. So it can be a valid question. After Easter, then what? Well, for us, it means delving into a portion of John's letter. The commentator, William Barclay, explains the context of the letter in this way. Many of John's readers were now second or even third generation Christians. The thrill of the first days had to some extent at least passed away. In the first days of Christianity, there was a glory and a splendor, but now Christianity had become a thing of habit, traditional, half-hearted, nominal. John was writing at a time when, for some at least, the first thrill was gone, and the flame of devotion had died to a flicker. So let's not fall into the trap of post-Easter doldrums, but let's use this time to build on the excitement of the resurrection and develop our relationship with God. As this morning, we look at fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, fellowship is a word that we often bandy around, but do we really understand its meaning? The Greek word that John uses four times in this short passage is koinonia. Now, that's a word I've been intrigued with for more than 30 years. Some very close friends from our previous church named their house koinonia. They've taken the name with them as they moved from Telford to Taunton. And so, as an inquisitive teenager, yes, I know it's hard to believe that I ever was one, I tried to find out what I could about the word. As I mentioned in the passage that we've just read, it's being translated as fellowship. Very often we use the word fellowship simply to mean the enjoyment of the company of other Christians. However, I believe it's a word that has so much more depth than that. Fellowship, as it's used in this context, is a specifically Christian word and denotes a common participation in the grace of God, a common participation in the salvation of Christ, and a common participation in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is the promise that was won for us on the cross. It's this fact that we have in common, this fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. So John couldn't have written that you may also have fellowship with us without adding immediately afterwards, since our fellowship with each other is with the Father and, the, and his Son, Jesus Christ. Because it arises from and depends on our fellowship with God. 
There are a number of commentators that remark that koinonia has such a multitude of meanings that no single English word is adequate to express its richness and its depth. And it comes from the Greek word meaning common. And it's a complex, rich, and thoroughly fascinating approach to building community or teamwork. And it's always noted, often noted, there's always an implication of action in the meaning. It doesn't just happen, we need to work at it. And there are three meanings that uh, we regularly associate with koinonia. And these are sharing, relationships, and community. And that's what we're going to spend a bit of time looking at this morning. So firstly then, let's look at sharing. It means a sharer, as in to share with one another in a possession that's held in common. It implies a spirit of generous sharing or an act of giving, as opposed to just selfish getting. When koinonia is present, the spirit of sharing and giving becomes tangible. In most contexts, generosity is not an abstract ideal, but a demonstrable action, resulting in something that's tangible and a realistic expression of giving. It also means to have a share in something, as when two or more people hold something in common. It's often used in ancient Greek as, uh, in terms of business dealings, such as joint ownership of a ship. And perhaps John was looking back on the distant days years earlier, when he and his brother James had been shareholders in the Zebedee Fishing Company. Their relationship to their father, and so to each other within the family, gave them that sort of common concern. It can also imply sharing an opinion with someone and therefore agreeing with them or disagreeing in a friendly way. But it's only participation as that contributive member that allows us to share in what others have. What is shared, received or given becomes the common ground through which koinonia becomes real. So how might we develop sharing with the Father and the Son? First of all, we go back to the, look back to the events of a week ago. God the Father shared his Son with us in the ultimate way. That's the most generous thing that could be done. And later on in, in John's first letter, he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God's done his part What's our part? How do we share in that love? And I absolutely adore the Isaac Watts hymn, um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last verse says this, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. To enjoy this sharing aspect of fellowship with God, demands our all, all of us, everything we have, all surrendered freely to the will of God. Secondly then, we, we have relationships. Kononia can also mean a companion, a partner, a joint owner. And the common ground by which two parties become joined together becomes something like a fellowship or a partnership. Two people may enter into marriage in order to have koinonia of life. That's to say, live together a life in which everything is shared. 
and the word in Greece also applied to the marriage bond that was shared. And it just suggests that powerful common interest that holds two people together. And often it's used in the Bible as a spiritual relationship. In this sense, meaning something that is held and shared jointly with others for God. Speaking about our common relationship with God. And the early Christian community saw this as a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And to create this bond, people of Koinonia, people need to share their joys and their pains together. They're united because of their common experiences, their common interests, and their common goals. Things like this morning when we were sharing with each other prayer needs and answers to prayer. It's something that creates that relationship and builds that fellowship. And so it was with the early Christians who John was addressing. They'd had a fellowship with God, sharing the common experiences of joys, fears, tears, and glory. Acts tells us, doesn't it, that the apostles shared everything. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the, of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was powerfully at work among them. There was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And people who, in that time who shared their belongings believed their true wealth lay not in what they had, but in what they gave to others. As I said, fellowship is never passive in the meaning of this word. It's always linked to action, not just being together, but also doing together. And with fellowship, there comes a close and intimate relationship, embracing ideas, communication, and frankness as in a true, interdependent, meaningful friendship among members of community. And that's the third meaning of koinonia, community. And it denotes a, a common unity of purpose and interests and beliefs. Rick Warren, in, uh, purpose, in his book, Purpose Driven Life, says that cultivating community takes humility. And Paul says this, doesn't he, in his letter to the Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Developing humility can be done in hugely practical ways by admitting, admitting our weaknesses, being patient with others' weakness, by being open to correction and allowing others to be in the spotlight. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. It's also thinking of others more. And Rick Warren in the same book also says that cultivating community takes frequency. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another. We are to develop the habit of meeting together, 
Habit is something you do frequently, not occasionally. You have to spend time with people, a lot of time, to build deep relationships. So if we're to build community with God, it follows that we need to spend a lot of time with him. So, uh, as you can see, as we look further and further into this word, we find a meaning, or meanings, that are like a seam that run right through our Christian faith. And we see that there's much more to it than first meets the eye. This fellowship demands action from us. It's more than just getting along with God and enjoying his presence. We need to take steps to get to know him and to understand just how much he loves us and wants to share with us. To do that means meditating on his word. It means worshipping him. It means joining with others in prayer and communion. Everything that we do should be focused on developing that fellowship with God and one another. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, his, says to his disciples, I have not called you servants, but I've called you friends. And that friendship is based on our relationship with God. We've only scratched the surface this morning of what fellowship means for us, but we've discovered that it involves action. The challenge then, as we look to build on the excitement and the promise of the resurrection, is how are we going to develop our fellowship with each other and with God? How are we going to share more? How are we going to work harder at our relationships? And how are we going to deliberately cultivate the community, both within our church and outside, that God wants for us? The main answer, I guess, is time. Taking time to spend with God. Taking time to listen to him and to act on what he tells us. Spending time with each other. Giving up our self-centeredness and independence in order to become interdependent. The benefits of sharing life together far outweigh the costs. And in the end, it prepares us for heaven. Amen.